Welcome to I Dare You, a series through the book of Daniel with Skip Heitzig. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. You can see by just where we're at in Daniel, the end of chapter 11, we're almost done with the book. So we've been at it a while, and we're almost done with the prophecies of the book of Daniel. Before we begin, why don't we take the pause that refreshes? Let's pray. Father, we realize that as we begin, we are actually speaking to the very God of heaven and earth, the one for whom nothing is impossible, the one to whom all glory and honor goes, the one of whom all of these predictions are made, the great prophecies of Scripture that you by your foresight are able to communicate through messengers to human beings that has given us insight into what's coming ahead a shock for Daniel and to us but today we're called to rest in the truth that you have given help us to do that in Jesus name Amen there's a boat that made its way to a dock at a tiny Mexican village And on the dock was an American tourist watching the boat come in. Off the boat stepped a fisherman with a small, modest catch of fish, but very nice fish. And the tourist said, how long did it take you to catch those fish? The fisherman said, not very long at all. I just went out, caught the fish, came back in. And uh, he said, well, uh, you could have stayed out longer and got more. He goes, this is sufficient to care for the needs of my family. So the tourist, curious, said, so what do you do with the rest of your time? The fisherman said, well, I sleep in late. I play with my kids. Later on, I take a siesta with my wife. In the evening, I go into the village and meet my friends and play guitar. I live a full life. The tourist said, I have an MBA from Harvard University. I can help you. If you started your day earlier, you could go out and catch more fish. You could sell the extra fish, and in time, you'd have enough money to buy a bigger boat. If you kept that up, over time, you could buy a second boat, then a third, then a fourth, and eventually you'll have a whole fleet of fishing ships. And if you keep at it, you can even have your own processing plant right here in this area. And by that time, you will be bringing in so much money, you could relocate to Mexico City or New York City or Los Angeles. And from there, you can control your vast operations. The fisherman said, how long do you think something like that would take? The tourist said, probably a good 20, 25 years. But you'll make millions of dollars doing it. The fisherman said, after that, then what? The tourist said, after that, you can retire. You can find a nice little village by a coast. You can sleep in late. You can play with your grandkids. Take a siesta with your wife. And in the evening, you can go play guitar with your friends in the village. You'll live a full life. I think the fishermen needed to school the MBA, don't you? The title of today's message is, I Dare You, Rest which sounds 
strange to our ears. It sounds like an oxymoron. I dare you. Rest. An oxymoron is simply words that you put together and they seem to contradict each other, like airline food. That's an oxymoron. You're lucky if you get four peanuts on an airplane. Government organization. That's another one. I dare you rest is an oxymoron. It sounds strange because a dare implies that you do something daring, that there's some element of danger or risk involved. I dare you rest? But this would make sense as a dare to somebody who is stressed out, someone who's a worrier, or someone who's the overcommitted workaholic pedal-to-the-metal manager type of person, or this would be a suitable dare to someone who is hearing bad news about their future, about pain and about conflict. And the exhortation, rest, that would make sense. That would be quite a dare. Daniel the prophet is given information about the future, conflicts about his people, the nation of Israel from his time all the way into the future, and then now, beginning in this verse, verse 36, the final period of human history which will be far worse than any other time. I believe, however, that these verses have a particular application to us today and that this message would be very apropos. Because we live in a day and age when people are probably more stressed than ever before. The average citizen is filled with anxiety and sort of living uh, on the edge, agitated with present developments economically in this world. Some of you struggle just to get by week by week. Then you hear of what's going on in the Middle East. And you add all of that together, and what people long for today is someone to come along and fix all this. That can be a danger. Time magazine, in an article called Inflation, Who Hurts the Worst, discussed, among others, a 43-year-old steel worker in Chicago, Illinois, married with five children on a very low wage, who said, and I quote, you really want a revolt, but what can you do? I keep waiting for a miracle, for some guy who isn't born yet, and when he comes, we'll follow him like he was John the Baptist. The Bible would say, there is a guy coming. You don't want to follow him like you'd follow John the Baptist. A coming king, a coming world ruler before Jesus Christ comes. And he will come with a plan. We call him most typically the Antichrist. We've already talked about him in the book of Daniel and seen his description. But he surfaces again here in chapter 11. So I want to, with you, consider four attributes of this coming leader. Four attributes. And then after the attributes, I want to give you a scripture and then a reason to rest. A scripture and a reason to rest in the light of those four attributes. The attributes are his arrogance, his aberration, his association, and finally his annihilation. I was looking for all A's. Can you tell this week? Let's look at verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11. This is the first characteristic. 
this coming leader's arrogance. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. Now, beginning in this verse, the angel who is giving to Daniel the revelation of the future skips sweeps thousands of years from verse 35 to verse 36. He just sort of like stops and there's this huge gap of time until now we're dealing with somebody not historic to us, but somebody who is yet future. Now hold that thought. By now you should get used to this, and I hope you are used to the fact that in the Bible you have gaps of time that are sometimes a couple thousand year gaps. For example, in Daniel chapter 9, remember the prophecy, 70 weeks of years are determined for your people in your city. And we saw how that the text shows there's a difference between the first 69 or 483 years, then a gap, and then a final week or seven-year period that is coming at the end of days, the tribulation period. The Bible speaks a lot about it. So we're used to the Bible showing us a gap. Another famous gap is, if you remember the message I gave in this series, but on Isaiah 61, called the world's most important comma, how Jesus one day stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth, quoting Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are captives, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and he closed the book. He didn't finish the sentence. He closed it on a comma. If he would have finished the sentence, it would have said, and the year of vengeance of our God. The reason he closed the book is because the year of vengeance of our God won't happen till the tribulation happens. That's the final seven-year period. So we're used to these gaps. And if you remember, I introduced a principle to you called prophetic foreshortening which is simply the principle that the prophets could see things happening in the future, future events, but they could not delineate between the sequence of those events nor the intervals of time that happened between one event and another. So they saw the Messiah coming. They saw Him suffering. They saw Him dying. They saw Him ruling and reigning. And they did not see the gap of time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. We have that here. We're introduced to that here. In fact, if you look back one verse at verse 35, you'll notice what it says. Some of those of understanding will fall to refine them, purify them, make them white until, here he introduces it, the time of the end, it is still for the appointed time. Then he says, then the king shall do according to his own will. So the scope beginning in this verse, is beyond the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're dealing with somebody else in the future. There's a few reasons I know that. Not only because of the way the language is written, but remember how I said last week that in the first 35 verses of this chapter, there's 135 well-documented, fulfilled prophecies? In other words, we're able to plug in from history corroborating data in those first 35 verses and see that it has been fulfilled historically. The problem is, beginning in verse 36, we have no such history 
that corresponds to what we read in this description in this final paragraph. That's where it sort of falls off the grid. Everything has been fulfilled. Nothing in this verse onward has been fulfilled. We're dealing with the time of the end. And so he's introduced this king, this ruler, as simply the king. The king is not Antiochus IV, who was the king of the north, if you remember, against the king of the south. Here is the king who is in this text, you will see, differentiated from the king of the north and the king of the south. And something else I want to show you, just so there's no doubt. If you continue reading and continue reading and you get into chapter 12, verse 1, there were no chapter gaps back then. They were added later. It's all the same narrative. Daniel 12, verse 1, it says, At that time, the time we're dealing with, at that time, Michael shall stand up. Remember, he was one of the archangels. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we're dealing with a period of time that is worse than any other period in history. And number two, it will end with a resurrection of the just and the unjust. That hasn't happened yet. So there's a gap, and we pick up dealing with some future event. But here's a question. Sort of an obvious question, but it sort of needs to be answered. Why is there a gap? Why does this keep happening? Why is there a gap here? Why do we have, here's the history, gap. And now here's the very end of his. Why is that? Here's why. Because the prophecies are dealing not with every nation in the world, but one particular nation. What nation is that? Israel. These are prophecies that center on future conflicts for the nation of Israel. And the only reason other nations are mentioned is because the way they affect the nation of Israel. That's why it says in Daniel 9, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Those are the Jewish people. And for your holy city, that's the city of Jerusalem. That's why in Jeremiah chapter 30, describing the same period of future history, it says, for this is a time of Jacob's trouble. That's a synonym for Israel, Jacob's trouble. So these are dealing with the nation of Israel. Simply put, all of the conflicts that we read about last week from the past are simply a foreshadow of a greater conflict and a worse time that is coming in the future. And it centers around this person called the king. I sort of gave it away at the beginning. This is the Antichrist. That's his, that's his most famous name, or I should say most infamous name. Even though, did you know, he's only referred to that one time in the Bible, and that's the book of 1 John. He's given 25 titles about altogether. He's called the beast. He's called the lawless one. He's called the son of perdition. Uh, he is called the man of sin. In chapter 7 of Daniel, he's called the little horn. Remember the little horn? In chapter 8 of Daniel, he's called the king of fierce countenance. Old fierce face. In chapter 9, he's called the prince that shall come. All speaks of the same person. 
a final ruler that will come to planet earth just before Jesus Christ comes again. One of the notable characteristics of his personality is his pride. Again, verse 7, the king will do according to his own will, and he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. We've already discussed this when we were in chapter 7. He's called the little horn, but he has a big mouth. He speaks pompous words against the Most High. So how can anyone rest when a guy like this is promised to come onto the scene having this kind of power? A prideful, arrogant ruler with power. How can you rest? Let me ask a more personal question. How do you handle prideful people in your life? You probably can think of maybe one, two, three, a dozen, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody who goes, oh, that person, he's just so... You know how most people deal with prideful people? They become prideful themselves. So when they're around somebody who's sort of heels dug in and arrogant, they sort of act the same way to one-up the other person that they're confronting. Oh, you think you're so great? Well, let me tell you this. That's the very opposite of the way it ought to be handled. There was a mom who was cooking pancakes for her two boys, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Kevin was the oldest, five years. Ryan, the three-year-old. They started arguing over who would get the first pancake. You know, kids do that. Adults do that. And so she saw this as a perfect opportunity to inject biblical truth in training her kids. So she bent down and she said, boys, if Jesus were here, I bet he would say, I'll let my brother have the first pancake. And Kevin, the five-year-old, the older one, said to Ryan, the three-year-old, hey, you be Jesus. (laughs) But here's the scriptural promise. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall. Though that is true generally, it is never more true than of this Antichrist. He will puff himself up and be prideful. And a haughty spirit comes before a fall. So you can rest in God's promise. Let's look at the second characteristic. This coming leader's aberration. Verse 37 says, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them. This verse is put here because there are three areas of peculiarity, aberration, that would be noteworthy to anyone living in biblical times. Three areas, first of all, The area of tradition, we're told, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers. In other words, he will have some religious heritage, but at some point he will turn from that tradition, from that heritage, and forsake it. Then it says, concerning his affection, nor the desire of women. He won't regard the desire of women. There's all sorts of books written about what this could possibly mean. Some have conjectured that the Antichrist will be a homosexual. But it could simply mean he'll be celibate. He'll be so focused on his mission that he won't desire to marry. Then, 
Third, in regards to religion, notice the same verse says, Nor regard any God, for He will magnify Himself above them all. Now this is an interesting characteristic. His pride is so up there, out there, that he would even exalt himself above God. Above any God. That's an aberration. I mean, you, you know, there's, there's arrogance and then there's arrogance. And this is arrogance to an aberrational point. Paul says the same thing, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now hold this thought, because I want to tie something together, that if I just move on, there'll be too many loose threads. I mentioned something a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. I suggested a possibility, and again, it's only a possibility. I'm not here to say I know who the Antichrist is or from where they're from. Enough books have been written that are wrong. But I suggested the possibility that the Antichrist may have Islamic origin, that the Antichrist might indeed be the one that the Muslims worldwide consider as coming soon, their Mahdi, their deliverer. And I quoted from Islamic literature to show you that they are expecting universally somebody who is coming to this earth, who is a messianic figure, an unparalleled leader, this is all in their literature, who will take control of the world, who will destroy all who resist him, who will invade many nations, who will enact a seven-year peace treaty with the Jews, who will conquer Israel and massacre Jews, and then establish an Islamic world headquarters at Jerusalem. Which, when we discovered that, it sounds, boy, that sounds a whole lot like what the Bible describes as Antichrist. We have two problems. Problem number one in most people's minds is this problem of the revived Roman Empire. Because the prophecy is that Rome will in the end days have some sort of association and revive. And so we expect a leader from the revived Roman Empire. So everybody looks to Europe as some white European guy who's going to come. And that's the Antichrist. What you need to understand, and if you know history, you remember this. And if you know biblical history, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision of coming world empires. And the last one were the legs of iron that represented Rome. It was the longest part of the statue. It was divided into two legs. In 395 A.D., Rome indeed split east and west. The western leg of the Roman Empire fizzled out, essentially. The eastern leg continued for another thousand years, and it was headquartered at Constantinople, which is today, modern-day, Istanbul, Turkey. If you were to take a map of the ancient Roman Empire, you would discover that 60% of the lands that occupied the Roman Empire are under, today, Islamic control. So we can answer that part of the question. The other piece of the problem deals with what we're talking about here. You have a guy who's saying he's God. The Antichrist is demanding personal worship. How could he be a Muslim? Any Muslim would never allow this. Well, here's what you have to remember. The Antichrist, whoever this person is, will accomplish a great deal in the first three and a half years of his seven-year rule. He will not demand worship until three and a half years is up. 
And in the middle of that seven-year period comes this abomination of desolation where he proclaims that he is God. That's once the world has given him allegiance. Then he invades Israel. Then he establishes authority in the temple. After the Islamic world, after all the imams and all the mullahs and all the ayatollahs and all the sheikhs have already said, this is the guy. At that point, to deny him at that point would be the ultimate shame in Islam, especially after a flush of vindication and satisfaction of we've made this much ground. Something else. Add to all that I just said what it says in Second Thessalonians 2 of this time period where it says God will send them strong delusion that they will believe the lie. There will be a supernatural confirmation of the already hardened hearts of those people on the earth. God will send them strong delusion and they will believe the lie. Okay, now, back to our theme. I dare you, rest? Daniel has shown this kind of a leader who will be arrogant and aberrational with no regard at all to any God or religions of other people. He'll be intolerant of other people's faith. And then he will turn from his own at some point. How do you rest with somebody like that? Here's what you need to remember. When all this happens, it will be for a very short period of time. Three and a half years is a short period of time when you look at world history. Three and a half years. And I believe that's what Jesus meant when he said, unless those days were shortened, there would no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake... They will be shortened. So here's the scriptural promise. God will not share His glory with another. You can rest in God's proclamation. Rest in God's promise. Rest in God's proclamation. Let's consider a third characteristic of this coming leader. And that is His association. Verse 38. But in their place He shall honor a God of fortresses. A God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. And thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now six times in this section, fortress or fortresses is used. It literally means a strong place. When it talks about the God of fortresses, it's simply a way of saying power will be his God. He will depend on military strength. He will have an enormous amount of military prowess and availability. Again, I remind you of what we already read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which will be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. He'll worship a god of fortresses. His aim will to be the political ruler of the world using a war machine and all the money he has to finance wars with military strength to gain political power. It will be chaotic There were three buddies who were talking about the oldest profession known to man. 
One was a doctor, a surgeon. His buddy was an engineer. And the third friend of theirs was a, a politician. And so the doctor, the surgeon said, well, if you look at the Bible, it says that God carved out of Adam a piece of him and made a woman. That means, gentlemen, my profession, surgeon, is the oldest profession known to man. His engineer buddy said, not so fast. If you go a little bit before that, it says in six days God created the world out of chaos. That's the job of an engineer. Over in the corner, their buddy, the politician, had that smile on his face, and he said, Ah, but who created the chaos? <laughs> What's interesting is that in this future seven-year period that the Bible speaks so often about, the first part of it will be a time of peace. The second part of it will be chaotic. And some of these verses ahead of us will even show that to be true. But in Revelation 13, John has a similar vision as Daniel. Daniel saw a beast coming out of the sea, actually four beasts. John sees somebody called the beast in Revelation 13 emerging from the sea of humanity. And when this leader comes on the scene, the world says, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? He will be so strong militarily. And yet, my message today is I dare you to rest. How can anyone find rest with a powerful, prideful, peculiar, political oppressor like this guy? Well, it's interesting. In the book of Revelation itself, which describes this seven-year horrible period on earth twice, in chapter 6 and chapter 14, God tells his people, rest. He uses that word, rest rest. Here's the scripture, Matthew 23, verse 12. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself is going to be abased. You can rest in his power. And we're going to show that to you in a moment. God's power to create the heaven and the earth is sufficient to deal with this joker who comes. Well, let's see that. Let's come now to his fourth characteristic, his annihilation. Verse 40. At the time of the end, notice that. The time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. So whatever we saw in terms of those kings of the north and south previously are foreshadowing this end time scenario. With chariots, horsemen, with many ships, he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, pass through... He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. All of those areas are in present-day Jordan. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, and yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. 
Now we're dealing probably with the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. Notice again in verse 40, it marks it as at the time of the end. Then it goes on to describe a coalition from the south of North African nations that are mentioned that come up against him, this leader, this king, this antichrist, that come up against him as well as a coalition from the north, kings of the north. Who might that be? Well, it might be what Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes as the war of Gog and Magog, all coming against him at that time. During that time, the Jews will flee to the east, Revelation chapter 12 tells us, interestingly, in a fortress in present-day Jordan. They will flee to their desert refuge in the wilderness. The Antichrist will hear news, bad news, coming from the east. It's caused us to wonder, what could that be? Well, Revelation 9 does describe an army of 200 million crossing the Euphrates River. That could be the bad news that he hears. He's got trouble from the south, trouble from the north, trouble from the east. He's got trouble. His whole powerful coalition at that point is breaking apart. And in verse 45, He shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas. What are the seas? Well, to anybody who's from Judea, like Daniel was, the seas could only mean this, the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. Those were the seas to any Jerusalemite or person from Judea, as Daniel was. The seas, the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. It's only one mountain. That's Mount Zion. That's Jerusalem. And yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So you have all these nations coming together, coming together toward Israel. You have this Antichrist, and then it finally says, the end And he'll come to his end, period, and no one will help him. You know how he comes to his end? You know how he comes to his end. I know how he comes to his end. He probably hears something and he looks up. And he goes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. Now I'll read it to you. This is Revelation chapter 19. This describes the end of that seven-year period. The beast has already been reigning in the book of Revelation. Now this is Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written which no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ coming back to this earth in the second coming. And I saw the beast, the one we've been reading about, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in the presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And those two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. That's how he comes to the end. And no one will help him. No ally can help him. Because Jesus returns with the armies of heaven. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room at the Last Supper? He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now listen. And if I go, I will what? Come again. I will come again. Ever since he uttered those words, the church for 2,000 years has been waiting for him to come again. And both receive us to himself as well as come over and take over the earth. So many hymns, so many songs have been written about the second coming. This is the ultimate reason to rest. He is coming. And that will end all of the conflict against Israel, all of the pain and sorrow of the world, all of the oppression we've been reading about. Here's the scripture, Proverbs 21. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Even this king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Rejoice and rest in God's plan. So rest in God's promises, His proclamation, His power, and His plan. I hope you're not thinking of God as sitting up in His heaven, looking down, seeing what happens on the earth, biting His fingernails, going, what in the world is going on down there? And how on earth am I ever able to save earth? He's got a plan. He's got power. He has made proclamations and promises, all of which cause us facing our future to rest. I love the story about the man who was out on the ocean. Of course, I love the ocean. And he was out on his boat and a storm came. And he wasn't too happy about that storm because his boat was rocking back and forth and he didn't know if he was going to make it. But he remembered... Psalm 21 that says, He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So he thought of that promise. God never slumbers nor sleeps. So he folded his hands and he looked up to heaven and he says, Since you don't ever rest, there's no sense in both of us losing sleep. Good night. What a way to look at life. I'm in a storm. But you're going to stay awake. I'm going to take a nap. You can rest in the fact that our God, sovereignly, who has made promises, proclamations, has power, He has a plan. So we can rest. Father, Daniel must have been initially shaken by what he saw and what he heard but then ultimately at rest because he realizes that the conflicts that have been going on in heavenly places that spill out onto the earth are under the sovereign control and planning of sovereign God who allows certain things to occur and choices to be made and plans to be carried out but all under the careful envelope of the sovereign will and power 
of himself. That must have brought great peace and great rest to Daniel's heart as it does to ours today. I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice and find our peace in you, our trust in you. And for anyone who has not done that personally, I pray they would. In Jesus' name, amen. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.